To be able to accomplish something safely and properly and to do it well, there has to be tremendous training under pressures. Whenever you uh, take off on an airplane, you certainly want to know that the pilots have been sufficiently trained. And they need to go through all the pressure of simulators, but that's not enough. They need to have had plenty of hours of actual flight time and uh, learn all the different lessons that need to be learned and know uh, that those particular aircraft inside out so that they are able to function exactly like they should function. And it's important for us as believers to realize that God has great plans for us. And the life that he allows us to live and the pathway that he gives to us is perfectly suited if we're looking to him to develop us and train us and grow us and uh, give us what we need to be effective in the ministry that God has for us. And of course, the, the Christian life is not just a pathway, it is a series of battles and God will use that. A military tactician, you're familiar with this, uh, said that battles are won before they are fought. That was his way of saying that victory depends on prior preparation. And one general called it making a good ready. You've heard that. And we as believers need to realize that God is preparing and working and training us. And every moment is ministry. Every moment is, is opportunity to serve the Lord. But he has greater and greater things that he wants us to accomplish for him. And certainly that was the case with the nation of Israel. God knew that they were not ready to go into the land when they were first uh, uh, delivered from Egypt. He did not take them directly in the uh, northeast route around the Mediterranean Sea. It would have been a matter of just uh, a couple of several months taking that huge crowd around. But they would have immediately faced uh, great enemies and would not have had the uh, moral fortitude, the the character, the faith in God especially, the ability to know that uh, God would work. And so the Lord wisely took them down to the Red Sea. They had to cross the Red Sea. And, and over and over, he puts them in places where they had to see that it's by dependence on the Lord that he was going to work. And so after chapter 16, the great chapter on the manna, the provision from heaven, and how God dealt with them about questioning him and how they needed to obey him completely, we now come to chapter 17. The first verse is a real blessing. And we're looking today uh, how God wants us to know that uh, we need his power. And uh, in verse 17, looks like they're getting off to a good start. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now, uh, let's look at the Sinaitic Peninsula. I'll put that up here on the screen. Uh, and uh, we will look at their journey. You see the Nile River going up there on the, well, I've got it. But they don't have it. Oh, you got it over here. That's right. They got both sides. All right. They're, they're fancier than, than I am. They want you to know the point, the whole thing. So anyway, I said, why do you always have it on one screen? They said, we got a purpose for it. So I, I trust our tech guys. But anyway, um, I'll look at mine. But uh, you have the Nile River there and the Nile Delta. Then you have the Red Sea and the Sinaitic Peninsula there, Mediterranean Sea at the top. And you see where they crossed the Red Sea at the top of the Red Sea, then came down 
uh, through the wilderness of sin. We don't know exactly what all the places were that are mentioned there in the Bible. Uh, but they make a journey down to where most think Mount Sinai or Horeb was there in the southern part of the Sinaitic Peninsula. You can see that there right at the bottom where it says Mount Sinai. You see the arrows coming down. So it took a little while. We don't know exactly how long uh, they were involved in uh, verse 1 here. But what I want you to note was that all the congregation journeyed. They followed the direction of the pillar uh, of the glory of the Lord there. And they followed that and they did according to the commandment of the Lord. Yay, they are learning their lessons. That's exciting. And they're following the Lord. They're ready for what God has next. <clears throat> well, then, uh, after following divine leadership, by the way, that is the way that you uh, are prepared. Let me stop here. I should have mentioned this. If we'll follow the Lord, then when trial comes, we know where it's coming from. And we know that God's working. He knows exactly what he's doing. You know, when the children of Israel came down and were surrounded there at the Red Sea, south of them were the mountains, and uh, to the west, and then to the north were Pharaoh's troops coming in. They had no direction that they could go. But God had led them there. There was the pil pillar. There was the fiery pillar at night. That was God leading them there. And so therefore, wherever God leads you, he will always, always, always give you deliverance. Same thing happened when they went out. They needed water. God gave them deliverance. They needed bread. God gave them daily deliverance on that. And so he's leading them, leading them, and they come to a place now, which again, according to following divine leadership, uh, they were put into a difficult place. So Instead of just following divine leadership, we see them quarreling with spiritual leadership. Unfortunately, they're doing it again. And this is the natural default position of our flesh. Let me read these verses. Verse 2, wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people. And I'll stop there for a moment. Uh, they quarreled. Uh, they were uh, upset here at this point. It's a strife. It's an argument. And they were directly personalizing it uh, against Moses. Now, what had happened was, going back to the map, they had come down, and there at Mount Sinai uh, was uh, Rephidim. That was a, a wadi or an area where at times there are, is water, um, and uh, it's a lower depression that would have been there by Mount Sinai. There are two different places that, that scholars think that it could be. One place, um, uh, it had just would be a, a, a wadi. A wadi is where during more of a rainy season you would have water coming through like a river and then eventually it'd dry up without rain. And, uh, and that is where they probably camped. It was, it's a large, wide one without mountains, and they could have all pitched there. That was close to Mount Sinai. The other thought is another wadi that 
um, does have springs on the far end and might explain why the Amalekites uh, battled with them. I have a tendency to think that may have been it. That may have been Rephidim. And, but in the portion that they were in, that was dry, um, just like the other wadi would have been. But the springs were uh, being guarded by the Amalekites who were there surviving at that place. We don't know, of course, but it somewhat makes sense with the succession of events here. But the point is they come down uh, to the uh, close to Mount Sinai where God was going to do a great work with them. And they were arguing with the Lord uh, and quarreling about this whole matter of we don't have water. Now, I mentioned before, we can have human sympathy with them because it's one thing not to, to have something to eat for a while. It's another thing not to have something to drink. And again, two million people plus and all of the, uh, of the animals, that's a lot of water. And so it's, it's a big deal. Water was going to be a crisis. Now, I want to remind you, though, of a couple of things. First of all, they could look and what was over them in the front portion of the congregation, the cloudy pillar. God was there. Also, what had they picked up that morning? Manna. God was there. And so the situation here is, yes, it's a very scary situation not to have water. On the other hand, God had brought them there. They had followed the commandment of the Lord. And they are there in a place of God's choosing. And God's providing for them with his direction, with the cloudy pillar of his presence and the manna. And they should have... Uh, simply turn to the Lord depending upon him to do what he had done for them before in meeting their needs. And so this matter of arguing with Moses, uh, Moses said, why, in verse 2 there, wherefore do you tempt the Lord? I can't give you water to drink. It's all right to try the Lord in the sense of things that he has promised. But these, this was a, a frustration. This was a lack of faith. Uh, this is a need. And Moses, you've got to do something about it. And it, it clearly showed distrust in the Lord, forgetting all that God had done. And they were under great pressure. Uh, the author of a book by the name of Release from Nervous Tension wrote an article for a magazine in which he made a striking success, a suggestion as how we can overcome mental and emotional tension. Would you like to know that? All right. Well, as a psychiatrist for the Veterans Administration, he was familiar with 10,000 case studies in this field. Thousands of people who were emotionally and mentally tied up, and they were looking for some kind of cure for nervousness. So he studied two groups. One, people that were struggling with anxiety and emotional stress. The second group were people that were pretty much free from that, living very normal lives. And one fact in this massive study began to come out very clearly. Those who suffered from extreme tension had one trait in common. They were habitual fault finders, <laughs> constant critics of people around them. 
Whereas the men and women who were clearly living without that kind of tension uh, had very little fault finding. I think that's very interesting. Just a natural principle of humanity. Uh, but it is a tr- it's a tragedy when we get all bound up. Remember, folks, when we trust God and we know He's going to work and we're not allowing ourselves to find fault with Him and we're resting in Him, that's where we have that peace of God that passeth all understanding. We're going to the God that we know is leading, guiding us, and He will meet our needs. But the easy thing when things don't go our way, is to blame. And of course, over and over, I've talked about bitterness. Uh, where Bitterness is when we don't have what we want or things aren't going our way. And so instead of looking at the fact we could have had God's grace, we failed at the grace of God and we blame somebody else for the problems that we presently have. And so they were blaming God rather than looking to God. They were blaming Moses rather than looking to Moses. Why did you bring us uh, out here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Again, that great set of miracles, and then they're complaining about it. And they they said, why do you want to kill us with this thirst? And so this was putting God to the wrong kind of test. They were tempting him. Psalm 78, 56 speaks of this. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimonies. And uh, in fact, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's where Moses just before Uh, He would go home to be with the Lord and they would go under Joshua into the land. He preaches to this new generation and in those messages he includes this, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Speaking of this exact situation. He warns him, do not. You have learned lessons and so uh, do not question the Lord. Now folks, We can talk about this a lot, but it is very easy for us to question God. You look at the powerlessness in America today. You look at the the stress and the problems among Christians and churches. We don't believe God. We have this, where is God? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Why haven't you brought a move of God, a move of yourself uh, and, and all, and, and by the way, when we think that revival is just God fatalistically giving it, then we're blaming God when it doesn't happen. My friends, we can have the blessing of God at any time we access it by biblical means and uh, looking to the Lord and having personal revival. And then God can do great and mighty things. And so tempting the Lord is to wait to see His power before you obey and trust. In other words, we uh, are... Uh, frustrated and we're not believing him we're not obeying him we are waiting for him to work folks we should be praying and doing what he's called us to do and then we will see God deliver and we can uh, know that he is going to work we blame God for failure and soul winning we blame God for victory of lack of victory over sin we blame God for our family problems We blame God for lack of success in business. No, you say, no, we don't do that. No, you may not do it verbally. But down way deep. Lord, why did you let me have that failure? Lord, uh, um, why did you 
let me have this kind of personality. There can be that subtle shifting of blame. My friends, anything God has ever called us to do, he has enough grace to make it happen. He is able to do a mighty work. And, uh, and so we've got to be very careful. That we can look at them and say, listen, they should have learned. They should have known. They had manna. Uh, God's presence was there. There's no reason for them to have doubted. But, you know, when you're really thirsty, things can get, uh, can get a little bit extreme. And, but the problem was, instead of looking to God and saying we have a need, God, why did you let this happen? It is a lack of faith. Friends, we've got to trust God. And God will allow you to face sometimes situations and you don't know where God is. You don't know where the answer is. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. Step back, get the right kind of counsel from the Word of God and from others about the right kind of wisdom, but believe God and God will meet your need every time. He wants us to trust Him. And so they were delivered here because there was one man that decided to believe, and his name was Moses. Now, he also was struggling a little bit. Let's look at uh, verse uh, 4. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. <laughs> he is uh, getting a little bit on the edge himself. Now, folks, 2 million versus 1 is not real good odds, Okay. Uh, I mean, he was, a, he was more vulnerable. Can you imagine? You're talking about powerful men. You're talking about all kinds of people. And they're, I mean, this is the whole congregation is, of uh, Israel is quarreling and arguing and frustrated and upset. And, and, uh, and stoning a leader was not an unusual thing in a situation like that. And, uh, of course, he knew the Lord uh, would take care of him. But he's just crying out honestly to the Lord. In verse 5, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel in thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take it in thine hand, and go. And behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. Now let me stop here. This is quite a scene. All right, you have the, uh, uh, you have all the people, they're at a distance from Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And uh, the Lord says, all right, Moses, I want you to lead out. You notice it's just Moses here. I want you to lead out. Take that rod, which has been a symbol of my power, and have the elders follow you. And you take the lead, and you trust me. And you head toward the direction that I'm going to give you. Now, I think it is, it's highly significant that the miracle occurs somewhere around the base of Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, of course, is where God's going to make his covenant with his people. And he was going to show himself there. So here you have uh, Moses, the elders following behind him. He's got his rod and uh, the congregation's watching and they're walking behind. I mean, that's quite a scene. Uh, you've got this trail of people and then this big group of people all wanting to see what is going to happen. Of course, they're pretty desperate. Behold, verse 6, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses just believed God. When God told him, one thing you'll note, when God told Moses something, he believed it to be true. 
Folks, we have the entire word of God. I feel for these people. They didn't have that. We have everything we need to know. We just need to simply believe it. So he goes, and this is not a rock that just simply needed a whack in which a little bit of the skill, uh, <clears throat> the thin layer would come off and water, would come, water doesn't come out of rocks laying there. This was a miracle. And again, I want to urge you when you go through the Old Testament, don't try to explain away miracles. This was a miracle. Everyone there knew it was a miracle. It was referred to several times in the Old Testament. And so he smites the rock and out of that rock, now think about it, out of that rock comes enough water for two million people for a period of time. That was quite a stream. All of a sudden, you had a river of pure water that came. And God delivered again. Do you think God's training them? Do you think there was a reason why God brought them to a dry wadi? Why he did not have them to the place where there are a few little springs there around Mount Sinai, but I think personally that they were occupied by the Amalekites, just a portion of the Amalekites. And, uh, and so God wanted to show them his great power again. When you are led by me and you're following me and it looks impossible, that's the very moment you have an opportunity to see me step in and you are going to learn by experience to have confidence in me. That's the whole spiritual life going from faith without sight to faith with sight to believe God and I'm going to deliver. Now, folks, whenever you come to a position and you know as best as you've been able to determine you have been following the Lord and you come to an impossibility, that's the very moment you ought to get excited. Believe me, everything in your flesh is going to say, no, it's not going to work. You know. Now, don't try to imagine how God's going to do things. Just trust Him. Keep on going. Keep obeying Him. And I'm telling you, God will meet your need. And uh, so, it's a wonderful thing. If you look at verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel. And talking about their tempting the Lord. Because they tempted the Lord saying, now here is what I want you to get. This is the essence of this whole incident. Is the Lord among us or not? Now again, they were growing. But isn't that a tragic statement? Is the Lord among us or not? Look at this mighty cloudy pillar. Is the Lord among us or not? What did you just, what do you have in your tent to eat? Manna. What's in the hand of Moses? The rod that, that caused the Red Sea to open up and to turn the Nile into blood. Folks, be very careful of saying, where's God? He's in you if you're a believer. He is here. He is the omnipresent God. He is among us as believers in a very special way. The Savior is. We must not ever allow ourselves to say, is the Lord among us or not? The question is, are we following the Lord? That's the big question that we have to come up with. It's a very good illustration here, folks, of where God leads us. God could have worked it out for them to go to where water was, but he brought them to the place he was going to meet them at Mount Sinai. He knew they were going to face a very desperate situation again, and he wanted them to see that whenever he's present and they are following him, he will provide and he, and he will miraculously work. God is in the miracle-working 
business. Well, that leads them into a battle. Isn't that interesting? Deliverance, battle. And uh, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, the Amalekites lived in the desert. They lived, um, and we're going to look here at the power for the battle that comes from trusting the Lord. Now, what did they learn in this matter of the water? They learned that you can trust the Lord. Water came out of the rock. And they actually are going to show here that they did learn that lesson because they weren't able to beat, defeat the Amalekites, but they defeated them. And so they lived in the desert south of Canaan around Kadesh and um, the northern part of the Negev. That would be at the very, uh, very top part of the Sinic Peninsula. Amalek was the grandson of Esau's old, uh, the son of Esau's oldest boy, the grandson. By the way, Kadesh would be right up there uh, near the top of the, of the uh, Sinaitic Peninsula there. You can see it. I believe you can see it. I can't read it there. Yeah, Kadesh Barnea. All right. In that realm was where the Amalekites were. And, uh, and so he became the uh, chief of the, tribe of, the, uh, of the tribe of Esau. And it's very possible that they should have known about the promise of God to Esau's twin brother Jacob and should not have felt any threat to their interest because God had promised to protect Esau, uh, but they did not believe that. And, um, and so, um, uh, and the thing that, that is interesting here again, why you look at the distance from Kadesh Barnea down to where they were. Now, the Amalekites did go in, in groups, large groups, and would attack different areas, and they lived as marauders, uh, just were fierce people uh, living off of other people, and uh, they, were, um, they were nomadic. And so they were down in this area very possibly because of the springs at Rephidim. And they were guarding those springs, and there was a large number of them there. And so here is Israel. Do you think that would bother them? Two million people right there, the sons of Jacob. And, of course, there's only so much water in a certain place. And so they, uh, there was a battle that occurred right after that point, just what seems to be there. Now, they incurred the wrath of God for two reasons. Number one, they failed to recognize the hand of God upon Israel and the plan of God in Israel's life. Obviously, they were of Esau, and uh, they resisted God's plan for their relatives. Secondly, they, were, they targeted initially when they attacked Israel uh, we find in, in Deuteronomy 25 that they went to the rear of the congregation of Israel and attacked the sick, aged, and tired. Let me just read that to you. I don't have it up here, but uh, Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when, thou, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. 
Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. The fierceness and the, and the total cruelty of them at this point and their attack upon God's people, God said, I am, I am not going to forget this. You are to eliminate the Amalekites. They had another battle after this, but we find that they were finally eliminated. First Samuel chapter 15, Samuel said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel now. Therefore hearken unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And so the job was to be completed. Now we know that Saul, uh, who should have known what God had said back to the children of Israel there in, in uh, Egypt and, and there on the border, uh, border of Jordan in, uh, when Moses was speaking there in Deuteronomy. He should have known that. When God said destroy them all, he shouldn't have kept Agag. He shouldn't have kept any of the animals because this was a curse group that was to be utterly and totally destroyed. And that's why God had to deal with Saul. But my point here is that whatever occurred here was bad. And God dealt with it, and God finished the job in 1 Samuel 15. And so let's look at what happened here. Verse 8, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. And so uh, we don't know exactly what happened because of the attack upon Israel. This was precipitated evidently by Amal Amalek, the Amalekites. And I, let me remind you, had the Israelites ever fought? No, they were slaves. Had they ever been trained in war? I don't think so. It had only been a matter of months since they had uh, uh, been delivered from Egypt. And so Joshua, the assistant here, the godly assistant of Moses, was told to go. And this is not because um, they felt like with a small army they could do it. He basically said, find men that have instruments of war. You know, they didn't have a lot. And uh, so uh, the idea here was get men that, that you feel could do it and gathered them together, and he had one day to form an army. I don't know of any general that's ever done that before, out of an untrained group. Do you think these people needed God? Now, one thing I want you to notice, did anybody argue with Moses about going to war with Amalek? Nobody did. As far as we know, every man that Joshua enlisted went. They knew they were not prepared. They knew they couldn't do it. But they had just seen water come out of the rock. And so because God said go, and Moses said, thus saith the Lord, Joshua who believed God got together an army. We don't know how many men he was able to get. But I can guarantee you the odds were not on the side of Israel to go against this fierce group. And 
But they go and the nation of Israel stands with Moses. Do you see the development of the people? The more you see God work, the more that you learn your lessons and you trust in him, the greater the opportunity to see the battle won. And so they accomplish this through being responsible. Um, they, uh, they accomplished biblical responsibility. They obeyed the leadership here. They prepared biblically. They did exactly what they were told to do. And uh, it's an amazing thing here. But, and they knew, and they, you know, it's interesting. When God tells you to do something, you just don't wait for him to do it. Could God have zapped the Amalekites? Sure. But he didn't do it that way. He wanted them to learn the lesson of what could be done and to obey and to trust God. And so they had to step out by faith, follow Joshua's commands, and face an enemy for the first time in their lives. Now, the last time, what happened to the big army that came after him? They all took a bath and never came out. <laughs> they got uh, overwhelmed by the Red Sea. This time, God says, it's time for you to go to war. And I tell you, folks, God's ready to work, but we've got to take the steps of faith. You've got to get out there and knock on the door. You've got to get out there and talk to a person. You've got to, to handle your child right. You've got to have the right kind of communication in your home. There are so many different action steps that God wants us to take, and then he will give us the power to do it. And so they engage the enemy, and then we see the need for God dependence. Verse 11, uh, verse uh, 10. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, uh, had the Israelites ever seen him raise his hand before and with the rod? Sure. Uh, what did that always indicate? God's going to work. It's going to be a miracle. And so I can tell you, the men as they looked up and the rest of the congregation, as they saw the battle going on in the valley there, when they saw Moses' hands up, they knew he was looking to God and God worked. And so God was teaching them. And have you ever tried to hold your hand up for a long time? You just can't do it. It wasn't that he was weak. Remember, he died uh, at 120, being uh, full, uh, had full power, full strength. I mean, he, would, he could have kept on going. God took him. So it wasn't the lack of strength. He was a powerful man. Uh, but uh, it's just you can only keep your arms up. And God was wanting them to see you're prevailing. It's not because you're great soldiers, but you're prevailing because there's a trust in me. When that's not there, you don't prevail. And so Moses continually demonstrated that victory would come at only at the hand of God. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And that, that's got to have been a blessing. As those men, if they ever looked up, there they are. There's two men holding up the hands of Moses. And God, they're looking to heaven, and God just works mightily. Amalek began to go down, 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 down. 
And everybody in that entire region knew exactly what was happening. God was fighting on behalf of Israel. And they were going to learn that far more in the days ahead. And so God intervened only when they looked to him and not their own strength. And let me just say that we do need to hold up, we use that term, we need to hold up one another's hands. Praise the Lord for Aaron and her and their wisdom. And because they did that, verse 13, and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, and a, a, the great, a great victory was won. And uh, we need, the way we uphold people by uh, and helping them hold their hands up is to pray for folks to trust God, to encourage them, but especially to pray for them and to be right there to say, take the step of faith, trust the Lord, and then really ask God to work. Uh, I love the story of Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, a tremendous preacher and a writer. And his first pastorate in Philadelphia, he was visited by a layman who frankly said to him, you are not a strong preacher. That was greatly encouraging. In the usual order of things, you would fail here. <laughs> but a little group of laymen have agreed to gather every Sunday morning and pray for you. Dr. Chapman added, I saw that group grow, get this, to 1,000 men weekly to pray for the preacher. Well, I am giving you the name of J. Wilbur Chapman. Many of you may not know the name, but many of you do. Why? Because some men prayed for the hands of that preacher to be held up to heaven to depend upon God, and God did it, and everybody knew. By the way, don't ever get frustrated because you're not strong naturally like a lot of other people. Uh, any of you young men headed to the ministry, you know, I'm not as, I don't have the oratorical ability of someone else. That's not going to bring the power of God. You need to be prepared. You need to do everything you can to speak as well as you can. But I'm telling you, it, it is the power of God that does it. Bible study leaders, any of you that lead in any area, it is God that will do the work. And many times our weaknesses are the very great opportunities for us to see God do miracles in our lives. And it's wonderful to see what God did there. And so God is teaching them again. You can trust me. Now, the water was an impossibility. The Amalekites were an impossibility. They, they saw in two days two massive miracles. And God patiently worked with them as they were griping and scared and under anxiety, God deals with them and then God teaches them with the rod, you can trust me. And that, that walking to that rock was very significant when Moses obeyed God and then hit the rock just like God said to and water came out, they realized we should have looked to God, he, he would do it. And so they were tested immediately, the weak uh, people at the back of the whole group of Israelites were being attacked by these fierce warriors that knew how to fight. They were facing another impossibility, but no griping, no questioning, completely following God's leadership, doing exactly what God said. A whole group of men put their lives on the line, and God did it. You think they grew a little bit that those two days? Absolutely. And it's so important for us to realize that God is endeavoring to do that. And the last thing here is God wants us to remember that uh, our deliverances. 
because he's building upon them. Verse 14, and the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God said, write this down. Remember the victory and also remember what I have said. And I will do what I have said. And I want Joshua to remember it. And remember, this was reiterated in Deuteronomy. And I believe that that is here in the Pentateuch. Because God said, I don't want you to forget what I have done here and what I have said. Folks, it's tragic when we learn lessons and then forget them. Now, unfortunately, Israel's going to forget these lessons, but they're going to build upon them. But there's no need to go through what Israel went through. And folks, every lesson we learn, that there needs to be a sacred recording of how God has worked in your life and the lessons that you've learned, and you can build upon it. You know, one of the, if you want a smart piece of advice... Don't have to relearn a lesson. Uh, you can go much further and faster, learn the lesson well, and then and by faith go on it. And by God's grace in the day in which we live with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we can do that. Now, obviously, the flesh is going to battle, and we're going to have to sometimes relearn lessons. But the more we can remember, uh, the greater the work that God can do. Folks, when God gives you victory over a certain sin, you need to have victory over that sin and remember what God did and stay on that, on that position of victory. Keep moving forward. So what's the great takeaway? You can trust God, and that's not a little, that's not a little trite statement. That's uh, uh, not a platitude, folks. God knows what He's doing. Follow Him. And the next time you say, Lord, this is impossible... Your heart needs to leap and realize, God, allow me to be here. Can't wait to see what God's going to do. God is going to work. And I want to do whatever he tells me to do, but I am not going to get under, under anxiety. I'm going to believe him because I want to be able to do battle with Satan and know that my prayer and my actions will defeat the work of the evil one and that God can use measly little me as a powerful soldier for Christ to accomplish his work in this day. Listen, there's no army on earth that can stand up against an army of believers in the comparison as far as power who know how to pray and walk with God and God's on their side. And uh, we've got to understand that uh, behind the physical wars, Satan's there. But the bigger wars are the spiritual wars, and we can see those uh, wars won. So let's let God do the work. And so you may be in that impossible place right now. Rejoice. Count it all joy when you fall into these tests.